Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's open in prayer. Lord God, we are so thankful for uh, a time to come and to celebrate your love for us in Christ. Lord, pray that we would be uh, attentive to your spirit, Lord, that you would open our ears and our eyes to see what you want us to see and to hear what you want us to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are several times in life that I have felt like a complete failure. Um, I have shared several of those times with you before, but in case you're new, uh, one of those times was when I was in high school and I got cut from every sports team that had cuts. Every single one I got cut from. Even men's volleyball I got cut from. That's embarrassing. Uh, and then when I got to college, my first semester of college, I got a 1.4 GPA. That was not out of 2.0. Uh, that was out of 4.0. And yes, I tried my hardest and got a 1.4 GPA. Uh, and then there was after college when I decided to start a business in sales, and it was a complete flop. And so I am well acquainted with failure, but probably my most pronounced and painful failure is my own moral failure. Uh, the times that I have pledged to God that I will be more holy, more loving, more righteous, and failed him time and time again. I'm curious if you can resonate with that. I'm curious if you are aware of any moral failings in your life, any times that you have pledged something to God and quickly failed to be faithful to that. You know, it has been said that we long to be fully known and fully loved. But the reality is, is we don't tell everyone everything about us. We don't tell anyone all the junk about us because we are pretty certain that if someone fully knows the depravity of our heart, there's no way they would fully love us. And so the question we have in the passage today is what about Jesus? Jesus knows everything about you. He knows all of your thoughts, all of your cravings, all of your passions, all of your motivations. He knows your search history. He knows everything about you could he possibly still love you? Well, if you come today feeling the weight of your own moral failure, today's passage is a beacon of grace. If you would please open up to Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, you will need one. There should be one in the seat in front of you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as a gift from Jake as well. We'll be at Mark 14 page 851 in that red Bible. You can open up there. Uh, over the summer, we decided to finish up the Gospel of Mark, which we preached several years ago. And we're going through the last week of Jesus's life. 
And so we have read about how the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus in order to put Jesus to death. We have read about how uh, Mary, the mother, sorry, the, the daughter or the sister of Lazarus has anointed Jesus's body for burial in an extraordinary act of worship. And then just last week, we heard about the Passover meal, which was transformed into the Lord's Supper in which it looked forward. And now we look back to Christ's crucifixion on the cross. Well, today we take one giant step closer to the cross. And in it, we will discover how deep the love of Jesus is for his followers. We're going to read a large, we have a large portion of scripture today. So we're just going to start by reading verses 26 through 31. Uh, But please keep your Bibles open during the entire sermon because we'll keep going back to it. So this is Mark chapter 14, verse 26 through 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. I feel like this happens most Sundays, uh, but I have a new favorite passage in the Gospel of Mark, and it is this passage before us today. And before we dive into it, I want to help you understand the tone of this message and this passage. Um, there are times in life that joking around is not appropriate. For example, when someone is having a heart attack, or if you are at the funeral of a young person, or when our country goes through tragedy, like in 9-11, there are times that are so weighty that it demands a serious posture, and joking around is not appropriate. Today's passage is such a situation. The sermon is not going to be upbeat or funny, lighthearted, Probably not a seeker-sensitive sermon, but by God's grace, it will be a soul-satisfying, sinner-saving sermon. As we grapple with the suffering of Jesus and the depth of his love for his sheep. So with that in mind, I want to look at three parts of this passage. I want to look at the followers' failure, the faithful's fear, and the failure's future. So Put it simple, I want to look at failure, fear, and future. First, the followers' future. Let's look at verse 26 together again. It says, and when they had sung a hymn, this would be the final hymn of the Passover meal, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is located just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Here Jesus quotes a 400-year-old prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13 and is applying it to the moment that is quickly approaching, saying that when he, the good shepherd, is going to be struck, 
all of his followers will scatter like scared little sheep. Of course, proud Peter is offended by such an accusation. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. I love this statement from Peter because simultaneously, in the same breath, not only is he exposing his arrogance, he's also throwing all the other apostles under the bus. He's like, abandon you? Scatter? Yep, I could see the other 11 doing that. But me, not me, I'm a good Christian. I'm a good follower. I am faithful. I am dependable. I will be there for you. And so Jesus, with surgical precision, goes a little bit deeper into Peter. Verse 30, and Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Verse 31, but Peter said emphatically, vehemently, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then I love this part. And they all said the same, right? So all of the disciples are sitting there throwing each other, but I could see the other guys, you know, they, they're kind of weird. They're kind of shaky. But me, I would never abandon you, Jesus. I would never deny you. I am dependable. And so how did these disciples do in fulfilling their pledge of devotion to Jesus? Well, skip down to verse 32. And there we see it says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, which is a garden at the base of the Mount of Olives. And he said to his disciples, stay here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. We'll look at this more in the next point, but Jesus is saying to his disciples that I am filled with so much sorrow, I feel like I'm going to die of a broken heart. This might stretch your theology of the humanity of Jesus, but it seems as if in this moment in time, Jesus is having a panic attack. He is overwhelmed with anxiety. And so he goes off to pray, and he returns a short time later, and we read this in verse 37. It says, and he came and found them, plural, sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, the confident one, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? You said you'd die for me. Not 60 minutes, that's too much to stay awake. Verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This word spirit in this passage that Jesus is using is not talking about the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of us as our humanity and our hearts. The spirit that says, you know what? I am strong. I am good. I am confident. Even if everyone else abandons Jesus, I will not abandon Jesus. Even if I have to die for Jesus, that's the spirit Jesus is talking about. The spirit is willing, but the flesh, the flesh, it's so weak. The flesh falls asleep. The flesh scatters. The flesh fails to fulfill the promises that our spirit makes. Verse 39, and again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. 
you would assume that after Jesus first catching them asleep and giving them a simple exhortation and rebuke, that they would stay awake after that. I mean, it's just 60 minutes. But did they fall asleep again? And then it happens a third time. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I have read this passage before, traditionally, I'm very sympathetic, sympathetic towards the apostles. I love a good nap. A good nap is a gift from God. Amen? We like naps. Napping is a good thing. And so I've thought to myself, come on, Jesus, you know, it's late in the day. They just had a big meal. They had wine. They're tired. Give them a break. Maybe you've thought that too. And if you have, then it shows that you, like I, like these disciples, have missed out on the intensity of the situation and the agony of our Savior. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, I was going through just a really hard time uh, in life, and it, it was just very heavy, and I was very sad and frustrated and angry and just in a really bad spot. And so I reached out to Pastor Chad Bodwin at All Saints Church, and I said, hey, can we meet? I need someone to talk to, and he was happy to do so. And so we got together, and I started spilling everything that was going on in my life. And, and imagine if in the midst of spilling this out, I hear something. I hear, right? Like, Chad, wake up. What are you, dude, I'm pouring my heart out to you. What are you doing? Right? By the third time, I'm finding new friends. <laughs> I mean, that's just where I'm going. I mean, imagine if you were at counseling at Jacob's Well Church and you are pouring your heart out to your counselor and you hear them snoring. You'd find a new counseling. I think you, I would. Because their response does not match the intensity of the situation. These disciples, these followers of Jesus were self-confident about their dying devotion to Jesus, and yet they could not even stay awake for 60 minutes. What about after this? How did the disciples do later? Well, we see in verse 43 that Judas and, and the, the troops come to arrest Jesus, and then look at verse 50 with me, which is next week's passage, but look at verse 50. It says, and they all left him and fled. Jesus' prophecy came true very quickly. They all scattered like sheep. And then after this, you may remember Peter follows behind uh, Jesus and, and the people taking him away. And he's in a courtyard warming himself around a fire, watching what's going on with Jesus. And then a little servant girl, literally the least uh, intimidating person in all of society, asks Peter, you are with Jesus, right? And Peter denies it. He says, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And she asks him again, and he denies it again. And then a bystander comes by and says, certainly you too are one of them. And then Peter goes nuclear. He calls down curses upon himself if he is lying that he is associated with Jesus. And then we know from the Gospel of Luke, this ominous moment in which the rooster crows and Peter locks eyes with Jesus, who is surrounded by his betrayers. And at that moment, Peter, overwhelmed by his failure, runs out weeping. Now you may say, oh, those dumb disciples. I would have been faithful to Jesus. Or, or maybe you're here saying, man, I hope the person next to me is listening to this sermon. If that's your case, you are just like these disciples, way overconfident, and your allegiance to Jesus. 
Your spirit may be willing, but your flesh is weak. Christians, like these disciples, we are all failing followers of Jesus. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I said, that's it, Jesus. I will never lose my temper again. Whenever my kids do something I don't like, I will sit down, look eye to eye, and have a heart-to-heart conversation. And then what happens? They say one thing that just frustrates me, and I snap, right? And Jesus says, really? You couldn't even last one hour? (laughs) Have you ever made such promises to Jesus? Have you ever said something like, Jesus, I will never hit my brother or sister again. I will never cheat on my homework. I'll never talk like that to my parents again. I will never lie again, lust again, be bitter again, get drunk again. I'll never miss church again or a quiet time. Or I will have a dedicated prayer life. I will never belittle my husband or wife again or snap at my children again, or I will never fill in the blank again. You probably know what that is. I don't want to dismiss that there is victory in Christ and we grow in Christ's likeness over time. Uh, We do and we should celebrate and praise God for that, but that is not the point of this passage. The point is we, more often than not, are failing followers of Jesus. And we don't just fail once, we fail time and time and time again, just like these disciples. And so that's the first thing we see here is the failing followers of Jesus. The second we have here is the faithful's fear. Now by the faithful, I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus is the only faithful one in this passage. He's the only faithful one to ever walk the face of the earth. Look at verse 32 with me. It says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed or in anguish and troubled. That word trouble can also be translated terrorized, okay? And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. I'm curious, have you ever been so afraid that you thought you were going to die of anxiety? Have you ever been so brokenhearted that you thought you would die of sorrow? Jesus gets it. Jesus gets you. This is where Jesus is in this moment, to a degree we can't even comprehend. Verse 35 continues, says, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Jesus is so overwhelmed with sorrow, so overwhelmed with fear, so overwhelmed with anxiety, that it seems that maybe even if he has lost his ability to stand, and he cries out to God, that the hour might pass. We know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is so overwhelmed with anxiety that he starts sweating blood. This is an actual medical condition in which individuals literally sweat blood. It is very rare, but it can happen when a person is suffering from extreme levels of stress or anxiety or fear. Now, this is all very alarming if you know Jesus. Because if you can remember, Jesus was one who did not get easily scared. Do you remember the guy who was in the tombs? The guy who had over 2,000 demons in him? The townspeople sent him out of town because they were afraid of him. He'd break all the chains because he was so strong. And Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee. He lands on shore and this guy with 2,000 demons 
charges Jesus. And Jesus stands his ground and then casts the demons out, completely unafraid. Or do you remember when the disciples were going across the Sea of Galilee and there was this great storm and waves were coming over the sides and they thought they were going to sink and they were terrorized. And what was Jesus doing? He was sleeping. <laughs> he was sleeping. He wasn't afraid. He got up, he calms the storm, and in fact, he says to them, and this is where he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Not only does Jesus not have any fear in his ministry, but Jesus actually commands us not to fear. He says to the man whose daughter dies, do not fear, only believe. And so we are in a little bit of a conundrum here because on one hand, Jesus has shown that he does not get afraid, he does not fear things, and he actually commands us not to fear. And yet in this moment in time, Jesus is terrified. He is he is really afraid. He is anxious. And so the question is, is Jesus a hypocrite? Is Jesus not practicing what he preaches? Why is it that Jesus is so afraid in this moment? Well, it's because there is one in the Bible that the faithful are called to fear. Let me read you a couple of verses. I think you'll pick up on it. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and they should be on the screen as well. It says, and now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? Psalm 33, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 34, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Friends, there is a faithful fear of God that drives out fear of everything and everyone else. Jesus himself even shows us this. In Luke chapter 12, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. And then here it is. Fear him, talking about God, who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Who are we to fear? Not our circumstances, not other people, not death, not even Satan. We are to fear God and God alone. And so let's pick back up in verse 36 with this in mind. Verse 36, it says, And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What did Jesus fear? Jesus feared the cup of God. Jesus feared the cup that you and I have earned. Jesus feared the cup of God's fairness, the cup of God's justice. It is the cup of failures like you and me. This cup is the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 51 says it this way. It says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dredges the bowl of the cup of staggering. On the cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, would become sin to those who belong to him. And for those who belong to him, Jesus bore the wrath our sins deserved. He went through hell 
for us on the cross. You know, many will say that hell is the absence of God, but it's actually absence of the grace and mercy of God and the fulfillment of the justice and fairness of God. We may jest about hell. We may say the word hell casually. Jesus never joked about hell. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looked into hell and was terrified. About this cup, Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, The whole of punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both hands and at one tremendous drought of love, he drank damnation dry. Isn't that amazing? He drank damnation dry for all his people. He drank it all. He endured all. He suffered all so that now forever there are no flames of hell for them, no racks of torments. They have no eternal woes. Christ has suffered all they ought to have suffered and they must they shall go free. How much did Jesus hate this cup? Jesus hated this cup so much that his soul was overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. Jesus hated this cup so much that it made him fall to the ground. Jesus hated this cup so much that he went to the Father three times and said, if there is any other way, any other way to save your people, any other way at all, can we do that way? And the Father said, no. He said, there is no other way to save my people. The only way that we can satisfy the just wrath of God is for Christ to drink it on our behalf. Charles Spurgeon goes on. He says, there was the cup. Hell was in it. The Savior drank it. Not a sip and then a pause. Not a drought and then a ceasing. But he drained it. He drained it till there is not a dredge left for any of his people. And so we have seen the followers' failure, that we, like the disciples, failed Jesus time and time again. We have seen the faithful's fear that Jesus had one fear, which was God and the wrath of God. But he drank it all up out of love for you and me. Finally, we have the failure's future. Look at verse 27. It says, And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Again, this is a quotation from Zechariah chapter 13, which happens 400 years before Jesus. And it was written to the people of God who had returned from exile to Jerusalem and were trying to rebuild the temple and were failing at it. And so so Zechariah comes to encourage the people to say, you know, it may not look like it, but God wants to restore you. He wants to enable you. He wants to, he wants to work through you. So keep going, right? And, and the question is, how would God do this? How would God restore his people? And, and Zechariah says something really peculiar in chapter 12, verse 10, that only makes sense when you get to the cross of Christ. And this is what he says. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, talking about the Lord, when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, talking about the Lord, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over 
a firstborn. And then you go a few verses later, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. He says, on that day, that day that he will be pierced, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Verse 7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. And then here it is. Here is the prophecy. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then finally, verse 9, I know it's a lot. Verse 9, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. When Jesus is quoting this verse from Zechariah, he is not only calling to mind uh, that the, 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 the specific verse, but also the context of that verse. It's, it's common in the Bible that this happens. So when Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, he's not only prophesying what the disciples are about to do, which is to scatter. He's also prophesying what is to happen to him, that he will be pierced, that he will be killed by the people. But more than that, Jesus is also prophesying what he is about to accomplish that through his death, the death of the good shepherd, he will open up a fountain, a fountain in his blood that cleanses failures clean and washes away all of their sin. That's why we sing that great hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. All sinners plunged from beneath that flood lose all, not some, lose all their guilt and stain. And so while the future for some is a cup of God's wrath, for those who are in Christ, our present and our future is a fountain. A fountain that washes us clean time and time again. A fountain of the blood of Christ. But there is future grace even more. Look at verse 28 with me. There are two promises Jesus gives here. Try to go quick. Verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus' first promise is that he's going to be raised from the dead, that there is going to be a resurrection, that sin and death and failure will not be the end of the story, that Jesus will rise again. And because of that, we too who trust in him will rise as well. But then he also promises, not only resurrection, he also promises restoration. Verse 20 again, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. After Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, he appeared to his apostles in Jerusalem, and then Jesus kind of disappeared for a bit. And, and perhaps the, the apostles thought, okay, Jesus abandoned us like we abandoned him. We deserve that, right? He's teaching us a lesson. And so they go up to Galilee and they go fishing, just like an ordinary day. And while they are up fishing in Galilee, Jesus comes and walks upon the shore. He comes to them to restore them. And what's so amazing, and I never saw this before, maybe you have, but, but Jesus actually uh, does a do-over with the disciples of sorts. Do, do you remember how Jesus first called Peter? Um, Peter was out and he had a failed night of fishing and Jesus goes, go back out and cast your nets again. And there's this huge catch of fish, right? And, and, then, and, then, and then Peter comes to Jesus and not with pride and arrogance, but saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Fast forward three years after the resurrection, on the same Sea of Galilee, Peter is out with the disciples fishing and they are failing miserably. And then Jesus strolls up on shore. They don't recognize him. He says, cast the net on the other side. Lo and behold, a huge number of fish. The apostle John recognizes Jesus, right? It is the Lord. They race to shore. And do you know how Jesus welcomes these 
failed followers. Jesus doesn't shame them. He doesn't say, I told you you would scatter. I told you you would deny me. He didn't say, I hope you learned your lesson. No. Jesus made them breakfast. And Jesus restored them. He recommissioned them to go and to shepherd Christ's flock. Now, if you think by this point in time, Peter has figured it all out, if you think Peter has stopped failing to follow Jesus faithfully, you would be quite wrong. Just after this, Jesus says to Peter, hey, so you know, someday you're gonna stretch out your arms, you're gonna die on a cross. And, uh, and then he says, follow me. And Peter responds in, in a comical way, but, but he, he looks over to John and he says, how about that guy instead? Like, can that guy, can that guy die on a cross instead of me? And, and Jesus says, you just follow me. And then we get later to Galatians chapter two and the apostle Paul had to publicly rebuke Peter because he was, quote, not in step with the truth of the gospel. What a gracious, patient, loving, wonderful savior we have who does not give up on repeat failures of his followers. I have a friend who, he, he, he gave me permission to share this um, anonymously. I have a friend who had confided in me that he had been unfaithful to his wife. Uh, he was married to a wonderful, beautiful, Jesus-loving woman, and he was not only unfaithful to her once, uh, but multiple times when he went out of town on business. Finally, he was overwhelmed by his grief and sorrow and sadness. He realized that he had betrayed his wife, he had betrayed his kids, he had even betrayed his Savior time and time again. And it finally came to the point where he had to confess this sin to his wonderful wife. And he was terrified. He didn't sweat blood, but I think it was pretty close. Because he was fairly certain that his wife would take the kids and divorce them and go away. And to be honest, who could blame her if she did? That's what he deserved but he knew he needed to tell her the truth. And so finally the time came, the day came, and he confessed to his wife his unfaithfulness. Anticipating fairness and justice, he was surprised by grace. Instead of responding with resentment and bitterness, she responded with overwhelming mercy and love. You see, she had been, been, been praying for her husband to come back to the Lord for years, and finally it was happening. And so when he confessed, she said, can we do a couple's vacation? Can we go away together? Let's go renew our vows. You see, her heart was to restore him as a husband, to recommission him as a spiritual leader of their family because she wanted a future with him. Her response seemed too good to be true. To be honest, I did not believe it. I thought, man, maybe she's just burying this. Maybe she's ignoring it. Maybe she's suppressing something. I don't know. But the years have proved this was a genuine, unbelievable act of forgiveness and love. 
Friends, have you failed Jesus again? Have you been unfaithful to him in your thoughts and your words and your deeds? I have good news for you today. If you belong to Jesus, no matter how bad or how often you have failed, he stands ready to restore and recommission all who come in repentance with his unconditional, unrelenting, unfailing, and to be quite honest, unbelievable love for failures. Although you may forsake him, he will never leave you or forsake you. As a matter of fact, he died for you and he even went through hell just for you. Jesus knows us fully. And yet, he loves us fully as well. Let me end with this. As we do the church expansion, as it finishes up, and we have to order a lot of furniture. Um, we have to order like refrigerators and couches and tables and all that sort of stuff. And in order to, we order a lot of online. To make sure that it will fit properly, uh, we have to measure it. We have to know the length. We have to know the width. We have to know the height, right? So like this pulpit has a, has, it has a length, it has a width, it has a height, right? This piano has a length, it has a width, and it has a height. This sanctuary has a length, it has a width, and it has a height. That's how you measure things. Length, width, height. Length, width, height. Length, width, height, right? Length, width, height. The Apostle Paul knows this. The Apostle Paul made tents. He had to know the length, width, height of the bars of the canvas. He knows length, width, height. And yet, when the Apostle Paul is communicating the extraordinary love of God in Christ, he tells us that in the love of Christ, there is a fourth dimension. We see this in Ephesians chapter 3. When Paul says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, there's one dimension, how long, another dimension, how high, the third dimension. But then he says, and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Why does Paul list a fourth dimension? Yes, it is so good to know about the length of the love of Christ and the width of the love of Christ and the height of the love of Christ. But for failing followers, we need to know about the depth of the love of Christ because the love of Christ is deeper than all of our sins. The love of Christ is deeper than all of our shame. And the love of Christ is deeper than all of our failures. Not only today, but tomorrow and the next and for all eternity. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come today confessing our sin, confessing our failure, knowing that as open and transparent as we can be, you know even more, and yet you still love us, and we are so thankful for that. Pray that we would come and live a lifestyle of repentance, receiving your re restoration and recommissioning to live for your kingdom. As we turn to the table, we again are reminded of the extent of your love. That you went to the cross and not only endured death, you endured hell so that we never have to. And we are so thankful for that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.